0: Hi everyone, welcome to Mind Matters. I'm Harrison Cayley. Joining me are Rilan Martin and Corey Schenk.
1: Hello, everybody. Hi, everyone.
0: Today we are going to return to Ponerology to discuss one of its early chapters. Um, looking back on this chapter, I you know, I recall the last the first time I read it, like, you know, ten years ago or something like that. More than ten years ago. And I realize you know how much I didn't really understand it the first time I read it. and I think that's probably the experience most people had reading this book because it's uh, pretty dense, and hard to read. But I found that you know over the years of um, actually reading more extensively and learning more things, you know going back to it, I, I find that there's a lot in there that I didn't actually know was in there at the time. Some of the sentences and ideas might have stuck in my head so that when I you know encountered them again in another form, they kind of it kind of rung a bell and you know made a connection but it was particularly in the last couple of years of listening to jordan peterson that a lot of the ideas are kind of coming together or have come together so we're going to be looking at some some of the sections from chapter 2 which uh, lobachevsky calls some indispensable concepts where he kind of gives the background for the required background for making sense of everything that comes after this so i mean like you know, everyone listening to this probably knows, uh, if you've been listening to the show before, um, of course, his main question is to explain um, pathological social structures like was encountered in the Soviet Union and um, the various communist states at the time. And so, as a psychologist, he basically is laying out, well, what are the things we need to understand in order to make sense of this? Primarily, he argues that we need to understand psychopathology and, and certain kind of concepts, r- surrounding that that haven't really been understood or studied. But there's kind of a wider background too, because if you're going to study, one way to put it is that if you're going to study like a a disease state, you know, in an individual, you kind of have to know a bit about the the healthy individual, first of all, What what's actually going, Well, the way things kind of should work and why the, why things work that way when they do. And then to be able to see how things go wrong and then to be able to answer the question of why things go wrong. <clears throat> So one of the first points lobachevsky makes in this chapter is that the it really is the individual that is the unit of analysis and of observation. He gives like a short history of the, the, the short history of the kind of foundations of psychology and sociology, basically pointing out that um You know, it wasn't until relatively recently that there could be an, uh, you know, even a semi-adequate science of these kinds of things. Like uh, Auguste Comte was the first sociologist, and he um, basically studied like the family unit. That was as small a unit as he went to. J.S. Mill kind of brought it back down to the individual. And then, you know, since then in psychology, we study um, individuals, um, you know, to know what's going on. And that is really where it has to start, and not just for understanding ponderology, but for you know, a wide variety of things. And this is why Jordan Peterson often talks about this. You know in the most of the talks he makes, he talks about the importance of understanding the, in, the individual and about societies that uh, kind of respect the individual and understand the importance of the individual and what that kind of means. So Lobachevsky gets, gets into that too. And so that's where he starts. Like what does it? Understand, what does it mean to understand the individual? and how will that then affect our analysis of like macro social phenomena well to understand the individual we need to understand um basically psychology and physiology and where those two intersect so he would call that maybe um like biopsychology and uh like today you have various kinds of neuroscience and um you know if you look at the field of psychology there's a heavy a heavy focus on the biology of what's going on and that's where you get people like um you know Adrian Rain, who does all kinds of work on the on the brain and on neuroscience, and then a guy like uh, um, I always forget his name, the guy that wrote "Behave." Um, Corey, you gonna know that guy, right? Robert Sapolsky. Yeah, correct? Sapolsky. Yeah. yeah. And of course, you know, th- their approaches might be limited to a degree, but it uh, but there's a lot to learn from that. And one of the points Lobachevsky makes is that it's you know you need to understand biology, you need to understand like basically the 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 hardware that we've got, because that, to a large degree, ex, uh, if not explains, it contributes to why humans behave the way they do and and why they think the way they think and and the kind of deeper things like what he calls the instinctive substratum. So he basically argues that, um, and this is kind of this would be a common approach today, maybe just in slightly different t- terminology, but that we have a a long evolutionary history that has contributed to the you know the bodies that we have, but also like the instincts that we have. We have a, a substrate of um, biology and like instinct and emotion and all that kind of combines into, um, you know, basically behavior patterns that um, that affect the way we react and behave in all sorts of different situations. So, of course, there are going to be um, instincts and behaviors that we have in a social situation that will create the, the kind of social structures that we can see, whether from... Uh, the, the kind of smallest level of analysis, so an individual in relation to their family members and uh, just the, the people with which they interact, whether at work, and there will be a social structure at work and a social structure of um, like a, a group of friends or any kind of, any kind of grouping, small grouping of human beings. And then from all of those individual interactions, those one-on-one interactions and then those individuals and groups, you get a, a kind of superstructure that builds on top of that, which we call society. And um, one of the observations that he makes, that you know, again, um, Peterson makes repeatedly, and that you know, it's only going back that I see that Lobachevsky made the same point, is that you know, he points out that uh, um, you could call them—he doesn't use the word leftists, but that's the kind of word we'd use today, like the kind of the people on the left or the the kind of socialist, communist ideological types—and he would argue, um, he would say, maybe it's a better a better way to. A better way to put that would be to call them just pathocrats or um, supporters of a pathocratic ideology. That they deny the physiology, they deny the biology, and they focus strictly on perhaps the psychological or the or the the sociological. That um, and that's essentially what you know neo-Marxists and like the and the postmodern neo-Marxists kind of that's their their worldview. That there isn't a human nature. That human nature is malleable and it's completely determined by social forces, and um, so the the way that translates into a, um, a kind of a wider ideological framework is that human nature can be made to be whatever we want it to be. So this goes back to the talks that we had uh, more about religion and uh, and religious ideologies, which are basically this is our this is our vision of uh, of the good humanity, what humanity should be or could be. And then here are all the rules and practices that we will institute in order to make people like that, because they are malleable. Um, but the error in that is that people are not that malleable. In fact, they have they have a nature, and um, that's basically what Loboshevsky is going about doing in this chapter: is to just give like the the most basic and bare bones, but fundamental like shared features of of humans to give an idea of what that human nature is. So. Um, maybe to just give a little summary of, of what he says that leads up to kind of the more social stuff is that basically, if you look at the individual and you, you take into account, so physiology and psychology, you find that um, there are a few kind of shared phenomena that we need to understand, um, one of which is uh, memory and memory association um, reasoning and what he calls like a basic intelligence, which is basically like a social intelligence it's you might just you might even be able to call it common sense he does it various times it's just the common sense of people interacting with each other the intelligence that they show in in their interpersonal interactions with each other so he would include just basic basic societal kind of uh, norms and morals in that but that are shared widely throughout the well throughout the whole human species arguably so this gets into kind of this is the area that jonathan Haidt looked into with his righteous mind, these kind of moral taste buds, the, the, the kind of um, basic moral impulses that all humans seem to have, um, but, that, but which we, um, where we differ is, is in the specifics of how we address those kind of moral concerns. Um, but the reason that he brings up memory and association and reasoning is that those are, well, those are the, the foundation of um, just basic human behavior, uh, I've, I mentioned on the last show, I think, about memory, is that we don't really... I don't think we very often, like, sit back to, to think about just how important memory is and how central it is to, to human consciousness, that everything we do depends on memory. Um, from... even just... even from... Uh, like, even in the, in the tiniest, um, like, length span of time, stringing together... even to, stringing together, a, like, a two-syllable word... In order to say a two-syllable word, you have to have like a continuous, like a continuous, um, like memory that's cycling back on itself of, you know, what you were what you were saying or not saying before you said the word, from the instant you first said the word, how how long you've been saying that syllable when the ne- next syllable comes around, and within like all of those little tiny memories. Um, like And reversions to memory within just saying that one word, you have, of course, your long term memories of, of language and all the ideas and concepts and feelings surrounding that, langu- for, surrounding that word. And then, of course, the context in which you're saying it and the thought in which, like the, wide, the, the larger thought in which you're placing that word. And uh, intimately tied with memory is association. So the way one kind of thought or image flows to the next. And that, of course, comes from memory too. It's your any image that comes to mind is an image that is in some way called from memory, either because it resembles something or you're remembering an actual thing, like you're remi- you're remem- remembering what your teapot looks like, right? Or you might, you know, the 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 idea of teapot might come up as a memory within a certain thought, etc. But these these follow certain rules, c- certain universal rules. Like all humans, you know, unless they have some kind of uh, brain damage or other problem, all humans remember and memory contributes to all of that. And the way that memories and and like memories and the process of thought comes together is associative. And then the reasoning is on top of that as well. Like we, we think in certain in terms of certain like logical rules, at least most of the time. And, uh, well, even then, there, you know, there are certain patterns to it. But when we're reasoning about something, there are certain universal standards by which we reason. You know, something either happened or it didn't. And if it's not, you're lying. And there are certain... Uh, it's not you're lying or you're mistaken. And, but there are so, certain bedrocks of kind of truth and reasoning. And the way this plays into the larger framework is that the, these psychological phenomena are basically what determine these interactions that we have um, with others. And when they go wrong... Um when there are pro- when there are problems, problems in those reasoning processes or in those thinking patterns or in the in basic intelligence in the way we interact with each other. Um, we could call those moral failings. There are, you know, reasons for why they go wrong. And uh, he lists just the very basic one, what he calls substi- uh, selective, like substitution selection and substitution of premises, basically where you um, where something goes wrong in your reasoning process, to the degree where you can believe something uh, that didn't happen, or um, um, or justify something based on a, a false premise, or believe a false premise in order to make the thinking like relatively logical, like it needs to it needs to have a certain form for people to be able to get behind it, to get behind their own thoughts, right? Um, and this is where like, self-justification and rationalization come in, and this can cause not only interpersonal problems, but in a wider social framework, it can be. Um, Directed and even well directed and influenced, and even um, brought on by uh, an external factor, which um, acts as a kind of uh, it has like a distorting effect on human uh, reasoning, cognition, thinking, intention, like everything that we think of as you know contributing to our behaviors. And this can be like traumatic experiences, or they can be malevolence, like direct, like conscious malevolence of a person, um, either like a parent or a, uh, or some close relation, or someone that you don't know. This could be a, a figure that just has a kind of a wide social um, influence that um, can distort your own reasoning, your own thinking, your own your own morals, even. And um, that's just kind of a, a very basic introduction of one of like just some of the points that Lobachevsky makes on uh, you know why you have to start at the individual
2: well I think I just wanted to talk about why I think it's he calls these indispensable concepts it's mostly because I think Jordan Peterson made the distinction in a talk I'm not sure when he made that talk but he was discussing the distinction between tragedy and evil and how when you're trying to understand what evil really is you have to make this distinction between Normal person and a normal person, and their moral failings and the actual cruel imagine, uh, imagination of like a psychopath and he uses the example of you know the motto of at that I think it was Auschwitz you know that work can set you free work and so will it, set you free work will set you free, so he said, imagine this the kind of cruel disgusting and sadistic imagination that would that would you know conjure up this idea this cruel joke and then place that in front of all of these you know slave laborers who are working for their death and you know he he mentions the fact that it's our moral failings that you know just our short-sighted limited way of viewing uh, other people's uh, the, the reasons that they make the decisions that they do mm. and our lack of awareness of what's really going on you know why why they're acting the way they do and i think just as you know just a one example uh, the election of Donald Trump you know when you look at it through like the 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 moral prism of the left what you see is a resurgence of white nationalism and that's what they see because that's what they've you know the the image that they've conjured up of what you know Trump represents what white pe- uh, people represent what capitalism represents all of these different things that have all these moral connotations that seek to explain reality where in in reality what these people who voted for Trump, I've just been reading this really good book called alienated America. And it's all about the reasons and the, the the sociological reasons and psychological reasons that people uh, put so much uh, faith in Trump. then it's because he was talking to people who had lost communities. They, they had a, they weren't necessarily like, you know, diehard conservatives, but they were people who had no, uh, civic culture whatsoever really to turn to. There were, you know, in their neighborhoods, they, you know, churches had disappeared, jobs had disappeared, families had disappeared. And for them, Trump, you know, this was like an apocalyptic moment. And they voted for Trump because he was speaking directly to them, you know, when he would say, everywhere I go, I see a disaster. This is a total disaster. And so, what they they see in him is the hope that they can rebuild, that he'll do something to bring back jobs. To you know, when he they, when he says "Make America Great Again," what they what they're hearing is, "We'll get our families back, we'll get a sense of belonging back, we'll get some sort of a meaning back." But when you view it just through a complete moral lens, what you see is this resurgence of white nationalism. Out to and then on the opposite end. You know, when you don't understand where the you know these this more liberal mentality is coming from, then you just end up with you know more kind of the moralizing about libtards and how you know liberals have always been the source of you know, communism and evil in the world, and so you have to be able to understand this. You know, just the tragedy, the basic tragedies that are inherent in our limited awareness of reality and how that can result in bad things. Mm -hmm. But not necessarily because these uh, people are evil, you know, because you have a different moral outlook. It doesn't mean that you're evil because you can can have this moral outlook. You can be wrong, but it can be just because you are not using these higher functions that he's Mm -hmm. talking about. You're not drawing on memory. You're not, you know... Using your these associations that we are biologically granted to you know to go out and to make connections to learn to augment the memory that we have with more you know and greater information, and it's just it's just a you know kind of a fact of life that you know that we're going to have conflicts and that there's going to be strife, but it's not necessarily this sense of you know this total evil um, that he is that he talks about as like the essential psychopath the actual sadistic, you know, mentality that would put on, you know, a cruel joke on a slave laborers camp just because it got the delight because it was delighted at the suffering of other people and as jordan peterson says it's that extra suffering, it's that joy from suffering, it's that cruel imagination that you have to be able to distinguish from just the follies of The catastrophes that, you know, impact everyone in their life. So, you know, he would say earthquakes aren't evil, you know, just some random, you know, fight or whatever isn't necessarily evil, you know, and arguments, they're not, they're not evil. But what's, uh, what's really at at stake here is being able to differentiate true evil from just strategy.
1: Well, this is a point that um, Lobachevsky gets back to several times in this chapter, uh, which is that there there's very little uh, in contemporary society that encourages the kind of appreciation and understanding and knowledge of those with different uh, moral values or structures or priorities. So th- this is made for a very easy time uh, for, for some who have entrenched themselves in a liberal or conservative uh, camp to... To deny or diminish or uh, or subvert any of those qualities in in the other side that is of value, where Lobachevsky would say that all of these uh, leanings uh, have value when they're constructive in in a kind of full spectrum of you know what a society is uh, is capable of and what it consists of. So, you know, like you mentioned a few minutes before, Harrison. Uh, we have Jonathan Hates Righteous Mind and, uh, and this, this book that you just mentioned that you're reading, Corey, um, and it, I don't know if it's only because I've just become aware of these recent studies or, uh, or just the fact that they're, they haven't been around and that we're just, just now coming to a new understanding. But um, it seems like this very understanding of, of why we should value the other side, so to say, is so important, um, and and kind of develop a objective language for uh, those uh, deficiencies that each side has as well, not just their strengths, but but where they tend to go wrong. Um, like yourself, Harrison, I you know I've I've gone back to this book many times over the years, and uh, I was just reading portions of it that. Um, that I, I could not have understood to the degree that I do now, 10 years ago, or even five years ago. Um, and I I feel like Lobachevsky has, <laughs> it's just, uh, he sounds like Peterson or he, mm-hmm. he sounds like uh, any of the good kind of social uh, critics that we're, we're finding these days who were describing uh, the phenomenon, especially on the, on the Marxist cultural left, that, that is um that is just so corrosive uh so i'd just like to read a couple of things here that i feel are are just spot on and and comment on some of the things that are more tertiary to the main point that i want to get across so lobachevsky says if various circumstances combine including a given society's deficient psychological world view individuals are forced to exercise functions which do not make full use of his or her talents when this happens, said person's productivity is no better, and often even worse, than that of a worker with satisfactory talents. Such an individual then feels cheated and inundated by duties which prevent him from achieving self-realization. His thoughts wander from, wander from his duties into a world of fantasy or into matters which are of greater interest to him in his daydream world. He is what he should and deserves to be. Such a person always knows if his social and professional adjustment has taken a downward direction. At the same time, however, if he fails to develop a healthy critical faculty concerning the upper limits of his own talents, his daydreams may, quote-unquote, fix on an unfair world where, quote, all you need is power, end quote. Revolutionary and radical ideas find fertile soil among such people in downward social adaptations. It is in society's best interests to correct such conditions, not only for better productivity, but to avoid tragedies. And he goes on to say, Politicians should also be aware that in each society there are people whose basic intelligence, natural psychological worldview and moral reasoning have developed improperly. Some of these persons contain the cause within themselves. Others were subjected to psychologically abnormal people as children. Such individuals' comprehension of social and moral questions is different, both from the natural and from the objective viewpoint. They constitute a destructive factor for the development of society's psychological concepts, social structure, and internal bonds. At the same time, such people easily interpenetrate the social structure with a ramified network of mutual pathological conspiracies, poorly connected to the main social structure. That gets to what you are saying about all of this kind of uh, projection of of the worst tendencies on the part of the right kind of splashed across the whole spectrum of, of Trump supporters. These people and their networks participate in the genesis of that evil which spares no nation. This substructure gives birth to dreams of obtaining power and imposing one's will upon society and is quite often actually brought about in various countries and during historical times as well. It is for this reason that a significant portion of our consideration shall be devoted to understanding of the of this age-old and dangerous source of problems, so uh, you know we, we've recently read about feminists who have come out and said, point blank, it's all about acquiring power, and that's it. Power, power, power as an end unto itself. Power as a uh, not as a, a means of of um, making things better for all. Um, regardless of, of who they are and, and what part and role they have in society, but just the total selfish pathological accrual of, uh, you know, raising oneself to a stature that is um, inappropriate. And there's another portion uh, in this chapter where Lobachowski says, you know, there there are people who understand that they may not be the most intelligent, or have the most talents or exist high up in the social hierarchy um, but they're willing to accept those that are above them and who earn more and who uh, do well for themselves if there is a if it's proportionate, mm-hmm. if there is a balance um, but when they notice uh, among those who are uh, who are, Kind of fluffing themselves up and and gaining wealth and power that that's so disproportionate to their station to what they've been able to accomplish to their to their gifts, then there's this natural uh, resentment and uh, and anger that builds and justifiably so, and I think that also goes a long way in informing and explaining why you have a whole population of people who. Uh, who are in support of Trump and who have had enough of the kind of uh, neoliberal policies and politics of the left that are so obviously an attempt to um, attain power for themselves and nothing else.
0: Well, um, I want to go back to a couple of things that you brought up. First, um, to give some background on the the first quote that you read, where he's talking about upward and downward social adjustment. The point he has there, well, the the background to that is actually quite uh, quite important, and uh, you know even quite uh, like profound and complex because he basically describes he's describing how sh- just how society develops normally when like normal humans are just left to their own devices basically, and the way he basically describes it is that well first he makes a, another very very Petersonian point that um, you know as the most complex species on the planet. Um, Humanity is also the most uh, variegated. We have the most, um, the most variations in individual traits. So this would be kind of getting into like the personality differences, like the big five, we had a show about that, and, um, and how, how unequally distributed um, talent is and competence. How in any different field, you're going to have a very tiny minority of the population that actually will succeed in that field or that actually has the aptitude. But that when uh, when a, when there is a like a healthy social structure in place, um, people tend to sort themselves, you know, into a basically a natural hierarchy where the people at the top of each like individual hierarchy are the ones with the the talent, with the with the competence. So you can um, and well, you know, he points out it's never going to be perfect, but um, but that's kind of the direction things go into. So you can compare like. Uh, um, I'll use a musical a musical example. You've got an orchestra. You know you have auditions and basically tryouts to get into this orchestra. And you and, and then you have people who have some talent who are basically making a, a judgment on your uh, ability, your like the the profi- your proficiency, the degree at which you can perform, um, um, and and then you'll be hired. So you'll you'll end up getting a uh, an orchestra with many talented people. Some will be more talented than others, and they might get like the you know the 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 opportunity to play the solos, and uh, you might have you know you've got second and third violins and things like that. But you're going to have a pretty good orchestra if you've got well, first of all, if you've got a pool from which to to cull so to to pull people out. So you've got um, you've got a a bunch of potential candidates, and you pick the best ones. And um, you know some people just aren't very good musicians, even if they devote their lives to it. Like you know they really want to be. uh, you know, a good guitar player or violinist or something, but they kind of just suck, and they, you know, they'll they'll never be at the level where they would be accepted, you know, in an orchestra. Maybe they might if they really work hard, but some people probably not. Some people, no matter how hard they'll try, they will, they just don't have any musical talent. But then, if you if you change that um, that structure and you kind of introduce some uh, some like uh, chaos into it, like let's say that the people doing the auditions themselves have no talent, they were put there. Um, like by a uh, maybe they have it was like a government appointment or something, so that you have a like a centralized government that controls every aspect of of uh, social life. Mm-hmm. So you know, some party leader has you know a, a third cousin that wants a position, and they're like, oh, well, we'll, we'll put you in charge of the you know the music department in you know X city. And so this person's like, okay, well, and so that, and so then they start hiring. First of all, they can't really tell who's more talented than others. They might have an idea, but they might they might themselves have political reasons, like, oh well, who's going to give me the most bribes? You know, the most money to get in. And so you you introduce this like artificiality to the process to the point where you'll get a an orchestra composed of people, some people who can play, some who can't, some who just got in there because they were related to the you know the the person judging the auditions some people who paid a lot of money to get in like you get this this mishmash of people who aren't competent who aren't talented and you get an orchestra that sucks they can't play good music and this applies you know at every level and in every kind of social institution this is the these you have the the more natural process where where people sort themselves into a you know into a, a shape that works and then people are um, in this first scenario, people are happy with that. So you've got people that go to watch the musicians who realize they themselves will never get that, uh, have that talent, never get that um, that position. They aren't jealous. They enjoy they enjoy the other people's success because they get to enjoy it. At least that's one reason. You've got a, the, then you've got the second scenario where um, talent uh, pe- people aren't properly placed based on their own um, characteristics. So, you, so the, the person, you know, the guy in this situation who just got the position because he was a relative of some party leader, he is upwardly adjusted, um, Lobachevsky would say. He is, he is a talentless individual who has been raised to a position of authority and power, and he doesn't have the, the actual talent and ability to fulfill his functions in that role. So one of the points that Lobachevsky makes is that a person in this position, um, on some level, they know they're a fraud, they know they can't possibly produce or um or just just do their job and so they they tend to be they tend to become very like overbearing and um and like hysterical and like kind of a bit mad because because they're in this position where they don't fit it's like uh and that's that's a, an uncomfortable position for anyone like because well Imagine yourself, you know, well, it's kind of like be, you don't know how to swim and you're thrown in a swimming pool and, and you have to learn on the spot. Well, what if you can't learn? What if it's a situation in which, you know, there, you actually require years of experience you, and you, you're thrown in there and you have to pretend. And that, that initial lie, you know, that lie to yourself and to everyone around you, it takes a toll mentally and emotionally. And he, he points out that people in these positions will tend to then be threatened by anyone who does have talent because they are competition. Their 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 position is now in jeopardy because by virtue of their their um uh, their position, they will be uh, getting certain advantages from that because that again that is also the way that human that humanity uh, kind of develops social structures. The people at top of the hierarchies get more privileges. They get more of a reward for for their. Greater talent and their greater ability, so he doesn't want to give that up because he's already he's getting you know he's getting more whatever more more perks than he would get otherwise. He wants to keep his position, even though he knows he's not good in that position. And so he will then sabotage other people within like his department or whatever kind of group he's in to keep that position. So you get this you get this kind of um, uh, really pathological structure. It is diseased. It's a diseased path a, a diseased social structure that cannot. Function um, to the level to the degree that it would if it was um, more evenly balanced based on based on competence. And um, on the so on the other hand, you get people who um, who have a lot of talent who are stuck in these low-level positions doing like menial jobs that they are way overqualified for, and they themselves will also get resentful because right. because they aren't like the, the the term he uses they they aren't in a position of like self realization self-actualization like they aren't where they fit you know there is more to them they they, they can contribute more to society to and well to their own lives, to their families' lives to society at large they would be they would be doing more good in a position where they had more responsibility and more perhaps power but they're stuck and they can't get up because the the um the opportunities are blocked because of the because of these kind of like artificial um, injections of this kind of like chaotic element, or maybe not even a chaotic element, it is really an orderly element. It's like, I, you know, I choose to put these people in these positions, you know, based on my arbitrary rules, and that just totally messes up the natural process. So so this is what creates the revolutionary situation. Um, Loboshevsky proposes um, like a, a possible... Uh, a possible like test or measure that could be developed in order to kind of apply to societies in mm-hmm. question to see kind of how ripe for revolution they are. Kind of argue, he basically says that you know it could be developed. You look at basically we should be able to come up with a, a measure of of a bunch of individuals in a given society and whether they're upward or downward adjusted. And I mean, I think that should be possible. And then, like the the higher the number, then the 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 more stable and and uh, the more stable the society is. And the lower the number, the the more disorganized the social structure is, and the closer it will be to revolution. Because, like in that quote that you read, Ilan, um people in that position get resentful when they're downward adjusted. They get resentful. Um, they have contempt for the people above them, like the 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 people who have positions that they don't deserve, um, who abuse their positions. And that creates the uh, the the um, the potential for revolution. There's a um, um, a phenomenon that Lobachevsky doesn't talk about precisely, but it's in there too, because um, he would call like you might call this a, a, a very unequal position or an equal situation. Not unequal in the sense, uh, um, well, unequal just in the sense that um, you know all other things being equal, there would be uh, more of a uh, more of a natural structure. There's an inequality in the sense that you have really like people who, like almost dispossessed people, but people who are under their station who really should have more, and you've got people who are above their station who have more than they should. And um, one of the findings that uh, that psychologists have found and sociologists is, um, this is from a book that, um, that uh, Peterson's recommended called, I think, Killing the Competition. Um, and it's a study of... Um, monetary, like economic inequality, and basically the the the, the researchers have found that um, in places where um, economic inequality is the largest, uh, the murder rate is the highest. So um, the because the reason is that it's usually with young males because young young males are competing for position, competing for. Um, for like uh for social status essentially and when they have no opportunity when they're stuck at that level that's that creates this kind of like in uh inter like competition between all these young males that don't have um don't have an out don't have a way of basically finding their finding a healthy role in society to play so they get into like the into drugs and gangs and then they're they're basically competing for women by Getting the most power in that situation that they can, the most prestige, the most status, and they end up killing each other. Um, that's where that's where murder rates are the are the highest. When there's a more equitable um, like distribution, where where those people uh, like people in that position, young men in that position, would have the opportunity to actually get decently paying jobs, the murder rate goes way down. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just one example. So. Um, one of the ideas in, in this chapter that, uh, that, that again, I didn't realize until rereading it, is that Lobachevsky, even though he doesn't use the word, he is talking about equality of opportunity in lots of these sections. He's basically talking about how important equality of opportunity is. Because when the opportunities are there, that, are, that allows for the social structure to emerge. That allows for the people with talent to, to get into positions. And um, um, like from the, from a more um, like leftist perspective... He also argues that one of the important things is that the people on the bottom, like the people that don't have very much, um, like talent, um, at least no talent to the degree to you know where they would naturally be in a a position of influence and like authority, that they need a relatively equitable, uh, an equitable kind of like um, exchange. Like they need to be able to function. Like they need a, a, a decent basic income, for instance, because when they because when they're not, when they have too little, then, then like Peterson again says, it's like that's when you get problems when the, when the social structure is so um, so entrenched that the, the top ends up getting like the, the top percentage ends up getting like uh, the majority of the wealth. But, um, and well that, that'll happen in any given social structure, but they get so much and in addition to that, the people at the very bottom don't even have enough. That is, that is also a very dangerous position to be in. But just to get back to, um, to what I said right before that, um, like Lobachevsky isn't saying that equality of outcome is, is a good thing. He, he'd totally agree with Peterson. He'd say that's horrible because he understands, um, like earlier, he was, he's talking, he, well, I'll, I'll read just a couple sentences where he's, um, where he's talking about this and you can see the, the, uh, the comparison with what um, Peterson says. Um, it, is universe, it is a universal law of nature that the higher a given man, uh, a given. Okay, no, I already said that. Um, profound psychological variations may strike some as an injustice of nature, but they are her right and they have meaning. Nature's seeming injustice is, in fact, a great gift to humanity, enabling human societies to develop their complex structures and to be highly creative at both the individual and collective levels. Um, thanks to these variations, the societal structure implicit, within, can also develop. The fate of human societies depends upon the proper adjustment of individuals within this structure and upon the manner in which innate variations of talents are utilized. Our experience teaches us that psychological differences among people are the cause of misunderstandings and problems. We can overcome these problems only if we accept psychological differences as a law of nature and appreciate their creative value. This would also enable us to and to gain an objective comprehension of man and human societies. Unfortunately, it would also teach us that equality under the law is inequality under the law of nature. And that gets back to, um, to what I can't remember, one of you were saying about... Um, um, the, yeah, the differences, like the, the kind of political differences, like in the United States, for instance, and the, the tensions between um, like the left and the right. And Lobachevsky basically is basically saying, yeah, that's, that's understandable because, like we know from all the, like Peterson and, and Height, the, the, di- the psychological differences between um, like conservatives and, uh, and liberals, um, those differences are there. But, like Peterson is saying, and like Lobachevsky is saying, if we understand the importance of those differences and the role they play, then those uh, the, the, it kind of takes the the bite out of the conflict between them. It's like okay, I don't I don't agree with you. Um, I can even put myself in your position and see your point. I don't agree, but but like I said, I don't agree. But um, I can understand the role you're playing in this situation. I think that you happen to be wrong. I know you think I'm wrong, and uh, but there's probably going to be like some going back and forth between us, and uh, basically just accepting that. Other people have different viewpoints, and sometimes they're right. Sometimes you're going to have the better position. Sometimes they're going to have the better position. It'll depend on the context. If you can understand that, that can diffuse a lot of social tension. But unfortunately, um, like, one of the one of the many deficits in, like, Western culture is, um, I, th- I think, a lack of this kind of psychological knowledge. This is why, um, you know, I think that we should probably have, like, uh, you know, psychology classes like very early like to be able to teach stuff Mm -hmm. like heights you know like the about about this sort of thing um but the other the one other thing that i wanted to talk about Uh, there we go we're gonna have to get that fixed somehow the other thing in that quote that i was wanted to respond to you you it was the bit about um like uh pathological Ram, uh, ramified networks that uh, spring up in groups, and then you brought up, but you brought up the, um, you referenced what Corey was saying about like the the kind of reaction on the left to, to Trump, but I'm not sure. i maybe, um maybe maybe I just didn't understand the connection you were making because what I understand what I understood from that is that he's basically saying that within a, within a given society, you will get um, essentially like. Um, um, well, on one level, mafias—you'll get groups of people that will um, that will form together and form their own little society, which will be pathological in nature. That exists not within the normal uh, the normal societal structure, but kind of like well, it, it's it's there, but it's not it's not integrated within the wider structure. It's like a it's like a second it's like a tumor that uh, that grows on the body, <laughs> a tumor. It's not. Uh, it's it's not it hasn't been it, it it isn't integrated with the wider social framework and what lobachevsky's saying is that that like those groups are the ones like often they're revolutionary like activist groups w- when they get into the the realm of politics mm-hmm. that then um like uh well like antifa or something like that or like the right sector or like um you know the the salafist jihadist movements in various countries like these are the kind of um Many social structures that develop that then want to take power yeah the, the, because um, because they they can 't see um, the the kind of wisdom of social structures they can 't see the the inherent wisdom in a, a a hierarchy of competence. they look at a normal society and they see um, only oppression and um, like they see people on the top mm-hmm. and the ver- by very like just the very thought of people on the top to them is, is reprehensible. But the reason that, that, that this is going on, according to Lobachevsky, is that because people like this actually, usually, um, at least the, the motivators of these movements, have something wrong with their, with their, uh, like their brains, essentially, with their minds. That they, like psychopaths, like schizoids, like they can't see social reality the way normal people can, and it strikes them as an injustice, and one of the reasons, another reason it strikes them as, as an injustice is because for them, they would like to have the freedom and the power to do certain things that other people find socially reprehensible. So um, like a mafia, like a mafia wants to be able to get away with all sorts of crimes that are outside of the, you know, the realm of normal human um, interactions and uh, enterprise and they want to be able to get away with it, and so they realize the only way that they can get away with it is if they get in bed, or they, you know, they get some cops, they get some politicians, they have some, you know, equitable ex- exchanges with these people, and they, then the people in power um, protect them in some ways, and maybe even put some laws in place that that will give them an advantage, and um, they they realize they need legal power. Um, like power from, uh, from the, the highest positions in order to get what they want and to be able to do what they do, mm-hmm. which is totally outside the bounds of normal like, human societies.
1: Well, so I feel like you sort of answered your own question. Um, just to compare the mafia to uh, the far left in this country, uh, you, you do have these radical people who, who want to do exactly what they want to do. Uh, they're trying to gain political influence Um, they have been putting pressure on politicians to enact certain legislation. In Canada, we have, uh, um, the, the law that, uh, that Jordan Peterson was, uh, resisting. Um, you have a, uh, an attempt to, um, browbeat and, and abuse police officers. You know, we, we've recently seen videos of, uh, the Antifa groups kind kind of um, lambasting and browbeating the police uh, for for just doing their their basic job of keeping civil order. They've basically taken over the streets in certain sectors. The, they have influenced the media in um, in kind of presenting things in, in in their own fashion or to their perspective or point of view. Um, so I'm not sure that there's that much of a difference. Uh, in some ways. Well,
0: I'd I just say that uh, I, I'd agree, but there there needs to be some distinctions made. Like mm-hmm. um, like the reaction to Trump, there are probably the vast majority of people who have a negative reaction to Trump and see the rise of like the, the far-right and the alt-right are just normal people. They're like what we would call normal liberals, who don't have psychological knowledge, don't appreciate the perspective of the right, mm-hmm. who are being hystericized by various factors, but they're not part of like a, a ramified pathological network, necessarily mm. they can be, and I think some of the examples you raised are like um, like revolutionary groups, like Antifa, and like and and various activist movements and activist leaders mm-hmm. are pathological and um, and are kind of these these vectors of of pathological chaos. But um, but in the wider framework, it is I think it's just the um, um, not just, but it is primarily the uh just the acting out of these kind of normal human differences when um without understanding it's like the, there's there's some I think there's just some some distinctions to be made um um as opposed to just saying like you know because there's the implication in, in what you said I think that that all of these like people with a violent reaction to Trump mm-hmm. are, are part of like a ramified pathological network. And I just don't think that's the case. There are plenty of normal people who are like rabidly anti-Trump.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I have friends who I've known for many years who have uh, surprised me in their responses to Trump, who I would consider to be very mm-hmm. normal and, and in many ways psychologically healthy. Uh, mm-hmm. So I didn't mean to suggest that the entire left you know, (laughs) liberal wing of, of, uh, American citizens are, uh, reacting in this way. However, um, it, it's such a, uh, it's such a, a, a shock to me in, in so many ways that they don't see some of these things, uh, for themselves, um, and have, and have joined the, the women's March in a, in a response to Trump's perceived, uh, misogyny, um, and have, You know, reacted so um, negatively in some ways to the idea that immigration should be uh, more rigorously enforced. That I, I, the the danger of of Mm -hmm. the pathology among the very far left is is so present among those uh, that are in the in the kind of centrist field that it's uh, it. You know, I have to. I have to acknowledge it. I have to. I'm. I'm responding viscerally to it. Mm-hmm. And who knows? I mean, I, in all honesty, uh, if if I if I wasn't making such a, a focus of, um, of of trying to understand this and and spend so much time looking at this uh, in in reading and working on Sot and, and discussing these ideas with here, uh, I, you know, I, I could even see my own. You know, liberal tendencies veer off in a direction, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, in in some of these ways. If if I wasn't looking at things as new, as in a nuanced way as I possibly could. Um, having said that, uh, now that I have um, to, to the degree that I am, uh, it's just a uh, it's a very it's a very difficult thing to to see among people. I would mm-hmm. I would hope could could be more ad- objective and look at more data and, uh, and just have a healthier outlook towards those phenomena that, that we're uh, seeing unfold right now.
0: Well, and this comes back to the one of the first points I brought up at the beginning of the show of um, these basic kind of human uh, universals like memory association and reasoning and then the errors that, pro- that crop up in those, which are subconscious selection and substitution of data. That is like those errors, which would be, which I would say, apply perfectly to um, a lot of the like anti-Trump, anti-alt-right um, um, like worldview or or mentality, um, because in within that mentality, there are all kinds of like falsehoods, like seeing the wrong things, seeing things that aren't there. For instance, like we like we did on the show with uh, you know the Mega Hat Kid, like seeing things that aren't there and creating these whole like narratives in in. Uh, like instantaneously that go on for a while that aren't based on anything in reality. Like these are normal human processes where where they go wrong that create the opening for um, what Lobachevsky's talking about, uh, like a a further progression of this other disease state. It is normal human failings, um, normal human failings in reasoning and moral reasoning that create the opening for, like in this case, it would be the far left to to, um, capitalize on... On that, um, like hysteria, mm-hmm. to to then take things, and that's how that's usually how revolutionary movements work. It's like a society becomes hystericized. They 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 are seeing things in in the wrong terms. They're not seeing reality as it is. They've got all kinds of um, all kinds of illusions about what's going on, and strong emotions about it, which that which then gets um, um, exploited and um, manipulated and used for a small group within that to to then take power. And uh like that's what that's what we're seeing that's what we saw in Ukraine, you know, with the with the um the right sector and the you know the far right in the Ukraine. Ironically, you know, the the biggest, you know, most successful far right movement on the planet today and yet um you don't hear anything about it in the, you know, in the western
2: news um because Russia. But uh but yeah. So that, I just wanted to go back to what you guys were discussing. Uh, a couple ideas that you've brought up, at Harrison and yourself, too, Elon, uh, concerning the these the ideologies that kind of color and taint the the left and the right side of the political spectrum. And I just wanted to read a quote. I think you touched on it, Ilan, but I wanted to reread it. He uh, Lopachevsky writes that the quality and richness of concepts and terminology mastered by an ind- an individual. And society, as well as the degree to which they approximate an objective worldview, condition the development of our moral and social attitudes. And when you look at the some of the basic assumptions that are that just are flowing in an undercurrent beneath you know the left, especially but also the right, these basic assumptions about human nature, um, you know on the left, you have these you know marxist. A uh, postmodern view of of human nature that there isn't really a human nature that I can do whatever I want, and that you know if there's any inequality at all in the world, then it's because of some evil you know tribal leader who tricked everybody into giving up their food for you know so that he could have all of their food. You know this just this very bleached view of human reality and of human nature. That would make it almost impossible for us for somebody who accepts those you know those assumptions as fact to understand the actual nuances that are inherent in living in a human in any human society you know harrison you you just you 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 know disentangled and and discussed the uh you know lobachevsky's view of human society especially like the adjustment and the drives the aims that normal people have and how they're so they're you know they're not represented in the left discourse today not in any real meaningful way and not on the right either i mean it's a little bit more in the centrist you know center right with jordan peterson especially you know with him coming out and really just giving a more of a common sense human centric individual centric uh way of viewing reality that is that and it's not that it's um that it's just a a problem in the universities. But as we see, as Lobachevsky writes, these condition the development of society's moral and social attitudes. They determine the kind of policies that we take, the kind of policies that we implement, the kinds of things we allow uh, corporations, governments to get away with. And right now I'm thinking specifically on the right, the idea that... The free market will just sort itself out, and that everyone, mm-hmm. everything will just work fine. Mm-hmm. As l- if you'd let uh, corporations do whatever they want without any intervention whatsoever. That any form of intervention mm-hmm. is uh, some sort of a, a sin has been. I mean, you know, that's I. I'd imagine that that had a large part to play in the mess that 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 we're in right now. The idea that you can just let. Um, you know, automation come in and wreck entire industries, throw people out of their jobs, you know, ship jobs overseas, and and then that there would not be any any impact. Or that if there was any impact, it, it didn't matter because the free market was allowing it all to happen. It's like, no, that's not the responsibility that we take as human beings for one another. You know, that kind of idea is pathological. That I and it's and it's wrong too. You know, there's there's no such thing as just a free market equilibrium where everything just clears and everyone is happy. That's not reality. It's a mm-hmm. it's a, an asinine assumption that you know some you know Ivy League or Chicago School or neoliberal or neoclassical economists use in order to get another job or to get, you know, their PhD and you know i'm not enough to you know don't want to get into that too far but just just to say that these assumptions uh impact the policies they impact society and they condition our moral attitudes in general so that not once you accept these basic lies essentially it makes it just almost impossible to have even the basic conversation that needs to be had where you could say okay so you know the, we have the left, you think this, we on the right, we don't agree, but we can at least respect one another because we're in the same country. We have to, I mean, do we want to exist as a country or do we think that we're immortal? Do we think that we're so exceptional that there's nothing that we could do that could possibly lead to a, a horrible outcome for us as a nation? You know, there's that to me, you know, just just agreeing, just having this basic respect for human nature, for the human instinct, as I think one of uh, one of the biggest takeaways you get from this chapter mm-hmm. is this idea of oh yeah that is pretty much what human nature looks like isn't it um, you know people go through disintegrative states they suffer they work they want to they want to succeed they want to function well they want to. To be able to contribute to society in a way that is fair, that it, and when they do, they achieve a sense of social justice for themselves, a sense of social justice for themselves and their family, which then reaps more rewards. There's more fruits for others involved, but it doesn't. It's not uh, divorced from human nature. That is inherently a part of it. You know, that's what limits us. Our moral uh, understanding, our moral failings can will trip this process up and we have to be able to at least understand and at least reach out respectfully and be able to say okay so this i think you know i this is wrong this we need to get to an an objective understanding of what's going on because we have brains so we can think and we can use our brains to make you know actual good decisions for the be- you know it, with a sense of goodwill and we don't have to be so we don't have to succumb to the rancor and resentment of of these you know these ideologies all of these moralisms we can uh you know we can we can just start from a sense of you know, of learning
1: well i'm 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 really glad you brought up the free market Corey, because um you know one of the things I had noticed recently in 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 reading uh of a proponent of the free market was just pretty much what you're saying is how much how much lack there is in understanding of the pathological element that completely negates any kind of uh well functioning of a so-called free market um you know if and and that's that's of course one of lobachevsky's main points right it, it's that uh if if you're not taking into account the the, the individuals um relative state of, of psychological health and, uh, and the percentage of individuals in a given society that will never be healthy uh, by virtue of their wiring, uh, essential psychopaths and, and the influence that they have. You know, you can, if you don't account for that, that type of thinking and influence within a, within a given society, there's no system uh, that, that will ever work you have to qualify it you have to be able to weed out or um or find a system that at least uh, mitigates the effects of psychopaths and um just on that note i i mean i i recall i you know i have a relative who was uh who got a, a wonderful job in a, a high-end corporation where he was able to uh you know he was told he'd be able to exercise his talents and um and he found out that there was a, a, a hefty little bit of corruption going on, so he reported on it and uh, and was in fact fired, and um, and it was quite a lesson to me um, that that the corporation would prefer to to keep the corruption in place because of the the nepotism involved than uh, than weed it out. Um, and I have a, another friend in recent years who, who had also uh, had a very good work ethic, worked very hard and, and had reported some, some inefficiencies and things that were going on in her department and was targeted by someone very high up uh, within the corporation she worked for. And she was basically terminated on a, uh, you know, on a, on a kind of whimsical uh, premise. Um, and it was such a, I mean, it was very sad. She was, she was beside herself with, um, with, uh, with, with grief for having been kind of shafted. She didn't understand. She knew that she had this enemy and, and it was, uh, it was something of, um, it was very gratifying for me that I could say, look, uh, there are some people who are just this way. They exist merely for their own self-aggrandizement and and power and their position in a, in a given hierarchy and they don't care a whit for yourself or for the well-functioning of an organization or for society or for anything else. Read this and this, you know, read society, you know, uh, you know, read, um, Paul Babiak and, and, uh, and Richard Hare's, uh, snakes in the uh, snakes in suits. Um, so Yeah. So there, there's a whole place for which understanding the pathological element of, of a society uh, takes, and that we that we should consider, and that's another kind of main point I think that lobachevsky brings up in this chapter in, in trying to understand what makes a society healthy, and uh, and what gets in the way of that.
0: Um, maybe. Moving on to another point, uh, some interesting things from the end of this chapter. Um, one thing that stuck out to me was his discussion of democracy, because he basically said uh, he provided some interesting conditions for like a, su- a successful democracy. He said that uh, it needs basically a prior history or tradition of that form of government, um, a developed social structure along the lines of what we're talking about, basically like um, you know a social structure that can develop through kind of Equality of opportunity to some degree, and a level of education, <clears throat> and that um, that uh, the form of demo- that you know the governmental form and societal form of democracy is partially justified by the healthy common sense of the individuals within uh, society. What he means by that is basically that uh, you know in a social hierarchy you have some people who um, you know are in positions of authority and know certain things, whether it be like uh, political, economic. You know, basically like organizational things, like people with some degree of expertise that the vast majority of people have no understanding of, like sometimes less than no understanding of. Um, they're just completely wrong on, you know, their, their gut intuitions about, you know, the way the economy should be and, uh, and the way politics should be. You know, most people's opinions are worthless on things like that. But he says that, you know, that the, the vast majority of people do have a healthy degree of common sense. Um, specifically in this kind of social structure manner. like they can see when someone's a, um, um, you know in a position that they don't deserve. They can see they can see frauds to some degree. Of course, you know not all the time and some frauds are really good. but I, I, when I was reading this I got the example of like the, the Kardashians. You know, the Kardashians are really, really popular among a degree of uh, a, a segment of the population. But most people I talk with are just like, man, these people are stupid. Like, you know, watching reality TV. I think a lot of people watch reality TV not because they have any kind of admiration for these people. But it's just kind of fun watching a bunch of people that don't really deserve to have, the, the you know, the kind of uh, um, stature that they do. But um, but you can see someone in a in a position who hasn't got there by anything that they've done and who just, you know you wonder why it's like, well, why, you know, why does that person have, you know, everything that they've got They, you know, what have they done? Well, and chances are, I think, and that's, I think where most people are, are right. So that like, there's a general, like people have the ability to kind of have a, um, it's like a thermometer. Like they've got a a certain kind of sense of what's going on and what's right and wrong. They might not know the specifics, but, um, but that sense can be trusted. Um, can also be manipulated, but, um, Maybe, maybe I'll just skip that because I do not know where the quote I wanted to read was. But
1: uh, well, I, I do have a quote that may be relevant, Harrison, yes, and, and one that I wanted to read from before when you were talking about it. Oh, I uh, found it, but it's okay. You go first. Okay. Technically speaking, it would be easier to construct appropriate methods that enable us to evaluate the correlations between individual talents and social adjustment in a given country than to deal with the prior proposition of the development of psychological concepts. Conducting the proper tests would furnish us a valuable index that we might call, quote, the social order indicator, end quote. The closer the figure to plus one, the more likely the country in question would be to fulfill that basic precondition for social order and take the proper path in the direction of dynamic development. A low correlation would be an indication that social reform is needed. A near-zero or even negative correlation should be interpreted as a danger sign that revolution is imminent. Revolutions in one country often cause manifold problems for other countries. So it is in the best interests of all countries to monitor such conditions. Mm -hmm. And... um, you know, we, we quite often see polls and, and indexes and, and things that indicate the relative um, happiness of a, of a given nation. There was one that we published on SOT recently that, that showed that uh, Finlandians in general were, were happier and more contented than, uh, than Americans and uh, proceeded to outline you know, why some of those reasons um, or what some of those reasons were. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I was wondering if, uh, in the, you know, the, the vast kind of, uh, reams of data that, uh, Peterson goes through to explain what makes a society healthy, if, if there was any kind of, um, any kind of contemporary index that, uh, you know, like, I think there's one that's, um, that refers to the, if not not the well-being than the um quality of life was it mm-hmm. i that that might be the closest i can recall to to something like this
0: yeah i i was looking around to try to see if i could find if anything existed and like i was thinking well there's quality of life there's job satisfaction um there's got to be a bunch of like you know measures like this that have been come before that could maybe be combined into something like this mm-hmm. but then i actually did some searching and like I, so i looked at job satisfaction and like Throughout the world, job satisfaction seems to be like relatively, relatively the same. Like no matter what continent you are, so you like, and that's the only thing I could find was by continent. So you'd probably have to get into like country and even like county level like analyses of things like this because for the most part, it was like something like seventy percent job satisfaction like everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like how happy are you with your job, and how you know, and well, there are various measures of. Uh, you know things that they ask, but the vast majority of people were fine with their jobs, fine with how much they made, fine with you know their their boss. Um, I couldn't, you know, I didn't really find the the smoking gun that I was looking for to to,
2: to see where to which to see what stuck out. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because that just kind of flies in the face of the the idea that um, that you know it, people follow the markets or whatever. Like you're just going to get up and go. F- uh, get a job you know if all the jobs leave your town you're gonna move to the next city to get a job it's like no people basically just will settle with what's there and everyone kind of likes their job basically the same and you know pretty much no matter what you're doing you're you're not they're not you're not tied like your identity isn't tied up in your job necessarily mm-hmm. for most people mm-hmm.
0: well i found that uh, that quote i wanted to read because he's, he's talking about democracy, he says that these facts prime, or partially justify the idea of democracy, especially if a particular country has, like I said, historically had such a tradition, the social structure is well-developed, and the level of education is adequate. Nevertheless, uh, they do not represent psychological data sufficient to raise democracy to the level of a moral criterion in politics. Um, a democracy composed of individuals of inadequate psychological knowledge can only devolve. So, you know, especially in the West, there's this idea of democracy as the be all end all of, of, um, you know, societal forms, and that every country should be a democracy. And if a country isn't a democracy, well, we should make it a democracy because everything will work out. Um, Well, it doesn't work out. And there are reasons for that. Like, for instance, like he says, like a lot of countries who that aren't democracies don't have a history of democracy and uh don't have a, a very de- developed social structure and don't have a high level of education like those are all kind of prerequisites for for democracy that's uh, so that's another point that um that lobachevsky makes repeatedly like in various sections is is the um like the need for an evolutionary as opposed to revolutionary uh means of societal development um so peterson talks about this putin talks about this you know that that it it can only cause harm to make grand, uh, you know, changes to a, a social structure, to a government structure, um, if there isn't already, you know, if the, if it if it's not just a natural development of what's going on. Like you, you have to like insert reforms piece by piece, piece and bit by bit, um, to to get something new. You can't just you can't just tear some tear something down and uh, replace it with, uh, you know, some new structure that um, that usually. Um, in the vast majority of cases, just results in a nightmare. Um, so one of the other points that, uh, that he makes, uh, he brings up some of the, the things that we talked about, like the things that will, um, that will deform or kind of, uh, yeah, I guess you could say deform the social structure, like the things that they kind of tear it apart. And so he gives the, the example of pathologicals like, uh, you know, uh, psychopaths and people with other personality disorders, like you were saying, Alon. Um, uh, I'll read that paragraph. He says, at the same time, um, such people easily enter... Oh, no, you, you actually read that quote earlier about the, the ramified network. Um, so within, a, within even a healthy society, you still have this stuff going on. Um, I think Lobachevsky would argue... Oh, and, and it's just observable that if you take any given society and you could probably rank order them um, by uh, by the influence and the like the the harm caused by that specific portion of the population like by um, this the, the psychopathological portion of the population and you're not going to get any country in the world that has like zero um, damage caused by this group um, and even in the states oh, but what you will find is it even without um, widespread psychological knowledge, some countries do do better than others. Like even in the, like in the West, we do have a lot of people in prison because a lot of the people in prison are actually psychopaths. Like our society isn't so, um, isn't so far gone and so um, like you know, diseased that all the psychopaths are running free all the time like they are in some societies. Like they have been like historically in a lot of societies. Like eighty percent of the people in, in uh like arrested for like serious crimes are psychopaths. Um that's pretty good for you know for where things are. Yeah. And like it's the it's primarily the US and some Western countries that have all the research on psychopathy and that have court systems that take all this stuff into account. It's like we're not uh we're not totally in the dark about these things. Um, but of course things could be a lot better at the same time. They always can be. Um but the some of the other things that he says that raise problems in a society are just you know the normal things um, he lists racial ethnic, and cultural differences and especially like historical grievances because on uh, like with historical grievances there's two sides to the equation right you've got the the people on the the receiving end of the of the historical injustice but then you also have the the kind of contempt for the the vanquished that the the victors have so in any in any um, place where there is a, a deep historical grievance, you're going to get, um, you know, these uh, these conflicts that that can uh, like that can last for generations. And one of the points he bring that he makes is that you, in a situation like this, it will require like he he guesses like three generations of good relations and you know positive developments before these kind of conflicts will die down and go away. Like it is a very real problem, and not an not an easy one to. To like deflate. So when you look at all these places in the world, like you know the ones that come up in the news recently, like you know in Kashmir or like Israel Palestine, it's like they. Well, how long has is the Israel Palestine thing been going on? Right, it's been it's been two three generations already, and um, you could predict that if there ever were a successfully implemented peace plan or whatever, which is unlikely, you know it would still the lingering resentments and contempt on both sides would be around for a long time. Um, one of the points he makes is that uh, these problems are compounded in giant countries, like, uh, like the United States, like China, like Russia, um, because you have so many different um, cultural groups and ethnic groups, um, especially like in Russia, that, uh, um, that you can't escape like, inter-ethnic conflicts. Like, uh, you, I mean, it's nice to imagine like this multicultural, um, utopia where everyone just gets along, but that's not the re- really the way it works in practice. Um, imagine all <laughs> the yeah. people, not gonna happen. And that another problem with like giant countries is because because they're they're so big and, um, and like the center, the the ruling, uh, like party is so so geographically far away from the majority of the people, there's this disconnect that happens, and you basically like it's like a, the problem with an empire the the Empire has to rule the center has to rule through primarily like government regulations and then those regulations can be so divorced from the actual realities of like you know any individual county that uh, that it ju- that just causes resentment so he actually argues for more of a decentralized um, like system of government for giant for giant countries and um, like uh, semi like autonomous regions that are that have like a large degree of autonomy and like so I was thinking about this in terms of Russia because um, that's kind of the direction that Russia was going in the 90s giving up a lot of autonomy to uh, to the regions in Russia. But that in itself had a lot of problems because in Russia in the 90s was completely lawless because the government was you know uh, just a, a joke and it was like basically no government it was a, a it was a group of like criminal oligarchs who ran the country and you know Yeltsin was basically just a puppet and uh, and not a very good one at that so when Putin came in and he actually has re-centralized power in Russia so taken away a lot of the autonomy that the that the regions had, so like, um, you know, appointing uh, region heads, region governors, as opposed to, like, having local elections. And that uh, that seems to have, um, like, so there are two sides, you know, to that kind of policy. That seems to have had some, uh, well, one of the one of the positives has been the reestablishment of the rule of law in uh, in the country. Um, but, um, like, I think Lobachevsky would argue, and, like, another guy, I like, um, even though he's American, uh, Gordon Hahn, basically argue well that you know it's going to come to the time where they're they're you know only problems can result if if all these regions aren't given a bit more autonomy because like chechnya for example has a lot of autonomy um partially as a result of the end of the chechen war where it's like okay now the now russia has to basically give some some special treatment to to you know, to to the region in order to keep them kind of in line um to make them feel as a part you know a part of russia and uh and that has been like successful, but now you have all these other regions that are like, well, why is Chechnya getting all these, you know, perks? Why can't we get them too? So there's, there, there, there are still in, in Russian society there are these lingering kind of resentments, and a lot of like the 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 regional heads are totally corrupt, and um, like it is a for a massive country, it is a massive problem too. So and I have no idea how, um, you know, what the all the right things to do would be to be, um, but uh, just to point that out. Um, and that, uh, another one of these problems, you know, in addition to the, to these racial, ethnic, and cultural, um, differences, oh, he does list like religious and moral differences, but he says that's actually kind of lower on the list. Um, for the most part, the, you know, the the problems posed by just religious or moral differences are kind of secondary to, um, to like the, the ethnic and cultural differences. Um, where religion can become a problem, he says, is basically when um, when there is the introduction of an ideology, a religious ideology of, like, supremacy, like we discussed in our shows on, like, uh, you know, Salafi Jihadism and, you know, Talmudic Judaism. But, um, but for the most part, people just get along. And you can see that, like, you know, things people were getting along relatively well in Iraq and in Syria, mm-hmm. you know, before the, the ethnic tensions were, like, uh, you know, basically weaponized in, uh, you know, and d- disaster resulted from that. And one of these other problems is that when you, when you have any of these, like, in a country that isn't, like, more homogenous like uh, um, like Japan, when you have different ethnic groups, and I, I've read uh, this, too, in relation to Russia, where you have some, some regions with, like, you know, four or five different ethnic groups, and, like, they all identify with their ethnic group. They're, they want to, like, sometimes it's a minority, sometimes it's a majority, they, but they want to be equally represented in power, or they want complete power. But when you have these kind of cliques that develop in these, um, and let's say let's say that a minority group in one multi-ethnic country or region has uh, the majority of like political power, what they then tend to do is to put their own people in other positions by virtue. It's basically uh, affirmative action. Um, they put people into positions based on being part of their ethnic group. And that results in this kind of cronyism and nepotism that results also in this kind of upward adjustment where people are put into positions of power for which they aren't talented enough. And it's the same thing that goes that's going on in Venezuela, too. Like in Venezuela, a lot of the people that, uh, that have like, um, you know, after the revolution, uh, a lot of people were put into positions of influence because they were part of the revolution, not necessarily because they were any good at what they were supposed to be doing. So um, I think that has that has contributed um, to a large degree to just the the societal situation in, in Venezuela, you know, regardless of of um, um, you know questions of um, like the result of sanctions and in you know external intervention and, and um, um, manipulations and things like that. Like just as a, from a societal point of view, when you have uh, like it basically is identity politics to agree. identity politics, cronyism, nepotism. Um, results in bad things when you don't just let people um, sort themselves according to you know their own talents. When you have any kind of extraneous category that you put on top of that, it's just a disaster. Um, it could be a small disaster or a large disaster, but you know any way you look at it, it's not a good thing. Um, and that so to come back to the, the like the, the free market. I think there's actually, there is a true principle behind the idea of a free market. It's like when you let people just do their own thing, they, they tend to sort each other out, sort uh, themselves out into uh, a structure that at least functions and can function relatively well. Um, when it gets turned into like a, a specific like economic ideology and like to the exclusion of all else, of course, that'll be a problem. Um, but the principle is, is um, I think, at least sound. It's like when you, when you let people just make like... Um, if you zero in on the economic decisions people make, it's like if you just let them kind of do their own thing, for the most part, you know, you always have to take into account other other factors and extreme cases. But for the most part, people will make decisions and uh, some people will get rich, some won't get as rich, um, but it tends to stabilize. And, uh, like, it's I think it's it's been like that for, for all history. There's, a, like, specifically in the United States, like, things have, have really kind of um, taken off in the last... Like what you know fifteen twenty years where um you know the inequality is basically getting larger at the same time um you know there's always been um let's say like a a level of poverty <clears throat> relative poverty right because uh there you know poverty in other countries is different from poverty in the in the u s it's like uh, poverty is a, a rel- it's measured relatively usually. Like if if you're just in the bottom ten percent, you might be considered uh, to be in poverty. But um, in a in a lot of Western countries, even if there's a large degree of inequality, the like the the people in poverty still have more than um, like the people in poverty in an, in another nation. So you can have uh, like an extremely inequitable distribution of of wealth and of uh, of money. And still have the people on the bottom being relatively well off. Um, that's not to say that it couldn't be better. Like, you can, well, put it this way. Theoretically, it's possible to have a, a country where everyone has, a, like, the minimum they need to be relatively happy and not to, you know, not to go in debt, etc. And and that country can still be extremely inequitable, possibly the most inequitable, if the top has way, way more than they do. Mm-hmm but still no one's dying on the streets from starvation you know no one's you know struggling just to survive so like so inequality in itself isn't a you know something that you can just look to to get like a snapshot of a of a country you ha- there are other factors to take into account um
2: just wanted to say that yeah i think i think that's a really useful you'd have to you'd have to look at their basically that country's like we had been talking about their psychological and kind yeah. of moral awareness and knowledge, uh, because obviously like you can have a, a condition where someone is relatively well off. They live a great life, but due to just lack of proper self-rearing, you know, lack of, uh, taking care of, of themselves. Um, they, uh, they just lack a sense of responsibility. They just, you know, they just do drugs. Um, they're, they're just a total wreck, and then they blame everything on the economy, or they blame everything on a political party, um, you know, and they're looking for a savior. And you can have a, a large number of people like that if it becomes kind of this cultural force, and it's spread through, you know, movies, films, books, just ideas, just this general uh, this general um, lack of, of, of backbone, which, you know, we discussed on previous shows, um, can only really be... Can only be corrected by proper self-rearing by you know sucking it up, you know that's basically the only way to get around it is you just suck it up, you get things done and you stop whining like a little <laughs> baby, you know oh that you know nobody's going to come save you nobody cares get it together or, or don't or just you know go just go extinct in your own you know go spiritually extinct that's fine. Well,
1: I, I wanted to so on that note, Corey. I, I was thinking about the left, and and wanted to come back to that quote. If if various circumstances combine, including a given society's deficient psychological worldview, individuals are forced to exercise functions which, which do not make full use of his or her talents. When this happens, said person's productivity is no better and often even worse than that of a worker with satisfactory talents. So certainly, we see that this this kind of um, Dissatisfaction on the part of the right, who in, in in many cases are just looking for jobs and economic opportunity on a on a basic level, especially in in the breadbasket in the Midwest, uh, where where populations uh, found Trump's message so appealing. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it is it a problem you think on the part of the left?
2: Well, when that, I was that when they're I, not sucking it up. When I read that that passage, the first thing I thought was, you know, the the stereotypical star beast starbucks barista with like 3 phd's <laughs> mm-hmm. you know they just basically they they work at, at starbucks they're they're smarter than you know everyone and they live in san francisco but they just you know and then they go to their anarchist meetings after work because they've they're so used to these, uh, this uh the sense that the man is keeping them down and they you know that yeah so i thought i thought possibly that that had a, a part to play with it, or a, a part to play in it. On the left, though, I didn't put much more thought into it than just that Starbucks barista.
1: See, I'm I'm wondering what there is uh, in the in the form of deficiency, and and maybe well, it's only what Peterson talks about in terms of cleaning your room.
2: Well, and it's also these big cities, I think, have are more likely to you know to sway over to the the far left. Um, big cities with people who make more living or make more money. Maybe it's a little more. It's more expensive to to be there, but um, you know, it, a lot of them probably make more money. And to them, it's something that you're entitled to. It's something that you're used to. Everything is fine. There's no. I don't have anything. Um, there's nothing wrong in my life. My family is perfect. I have two kids. I have a you know six figure. Uh, year job, and the economy where I'm at is booming. The stocks are, they're fine. Obama's great. Obama was handsome, and you know, it's just that basic, that's superficial that, you know, it's not maybe necessarily that uh, they're not sucking it up, but it's just a matter of this uh, superficiality that we've talked about before that happens when you go through periods of, of good times where times are good, and you adopt this, these you know, doctrinaire beliefs that um, if only you could eradicate all suffering, then life would be better. And if, you know, everyone who is, uh, who, who is work, who is, who owns a business is exploiting their workers and exploitation is bad. And mm-hmm. all of these very simplistic notions about reality that, um, that you, you know, that they, they don't stack. You can't really logically, you know, understand the world better with them. You just you just have to smash them onto the world, make everything fit into these pre-existing ideological categories. And, um, you know, when times are simple, that's relatively easy to do because you don't necessarily, I mean, it's not like your life depends on knowing what's actually happening or knowing objective reality. So you can get away with sliding away from um, reality and, you know, engaging in, in all of these different ways of 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 rationalizing, um, you know, this or that situation, and then in the end, you know, in in the end, though, um, that just ends up in with bad times. Times get worse. Then people have to actually apply their their minds to to figure out what's going on, to learn the truth, to to you know, engage in lifelong pursuits of understanding what's going on. And, you know, not just an evening of searching on Google for, you know, Marxist <laughs> <laughs> literature, but, you know, guys that go through their whole lives to discover, you know, to learn, um, the complexities and understand the, you know, the, the meaning, I guess, of life.
0: Well, with, uh, on that note, I want to read one final thing, uh, to close out the show. So before I do that, I'll say thanks for tuning in. And, uh, We'll be back next week, with uh, hopefully with special video, uh, videographic awesomeness. We'll see. Um, and we'll announce all that next week. But um, to close out, here's the last couple paragraphs from this chapter. If societies and their wise people are able to accept an objective understanding of social and sociopathological phenomena, overcoming the emotionalism and egotism Of the natural worldview for this purpose, they shall find a means of action based on an understanding of the essence of phenomena. It will then become evident that a proper vaccine or treatment can be found for each of the diseases scourging the earth in the form of major or minor social epidemics. Just as a sailor possessing an accurate nautical map enjoys greater freedom of course selection and maneuvering amid islands and bays, A person endowed with a better comprehension of self, other people and the complex interdependencies of social life becomes more independent of the various circumstances of life and better able to overcome situations which are difficult to understand. At the same time such improved knowledge makes an individual more liable to accept his duties towards society and to subordinate himself to the discipline which arises as a corollary. Better informed societies also achieve internal order and criteria for collective efforts. This book is dedicated to reinforcing this knowledge by means of a naturalistic understanding of phenomena, something heretofore comprehended only by means of excessively moralistic categories of the natural worldview. Such a system would be better than any of its predecessors. Building it is possible and necessary, not just some vague futuristic vision. After all, a whole series of countries is now dominated this is in the 80s, by conditions which have destroyed the structural forms worked out by history and replaced them with social systems inimical to creative functioning, systems which can only survive by means of force. We are thus confronted with a great construction project demanding wide-ranging and well-organized work. The earlier we undertake the job, the more time we will have to carry it out. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.
1: Bye, everybody. Take care.